We've been moving through Exodus over the past year, more now. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 35, verses 1 through 29, and our complementary passage will be Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So with your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, in honor of God's word, please stand. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, hear God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 35, beginning in verse 1, and continuing in the reading of God's word. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, There are things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Let every skilled craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent, and its covering, its hooks, and its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles, and all its utensils, and the bread of presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils, and its lamps, and the oil for the light. And the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle. The altar of the burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments 
for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and bought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicated an offering of gold to the Lord, and everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linens of goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skilled woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Let's part in the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, as we have read, we now come to the hearing preaching of your word. We pray that you would speak by that word, by your spirit. Break the stubborn heart. Heal the wounded. Bind us up and strengthen us in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So I feel like I live in a weird contradiction in terms. On the one hand, everybody that I ever speak to gets really cynical about New Year's resolutions. They laugh and they say, oh, I used to make New Year's resolutions. I don't do New Year's resolutions. I never keep them. New Year's resolutions, nope. That's all the people I hang around with. And yet at the same time, I know that there is still a significant jump in the increase in gym memberships in January. So, I don't know, maybe I just hang around cynical, bad people, and all the good people continue to make New Year's resolutions, but I know in my own life, one of the things that sort of led me to stop being as big on New Year's resolutions was I got really tired of failing. I got really tired of letting people know that I was going to do something. I'm going to join a gym. And I'm going to lose 40 pounds, and I'm going to get ripped. And about January 4th is when my will begins to buckle. And maybe I make it to January 15th. But pretty obviously, as a surprise to no one, my gym membership has never been a sustaining model for me. But isn't that often the case with the Christian life. Isn't that often how you and I live? We're we're trying to do what's right. We're trying to grow before the Lord and we fall. We sin. There's something that we struggle with. There's something in our life, some idol 
that God has revealed to us, something in our life that we just cannot get beyond. And it gets weary when it just seems like we're repeating this cycle over and over and over again. So just to quickly set the stage, just to quickly set us in our grand context, the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they've come to Mount Sinai. The Mount Sinai covenant begins in Exodus chapter 18 and runs all the way through Numbers chapter 9. It's a seven-part covenant that encompasses this huge portion of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The children of Israel camped in this one location, received from God this grand seven-structure teaching, direction. The first is the marriage covenant. In chapter 18, the language of, I've drawn you to myself like uh, on the wings of eagles, that lover's language, wooing, and then giving the Ten Commandments. This is what the marriage covenant looks like. Later, when Israel falls into sin and is vomited from the land, the minor prophets, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, major prophet, but also the minor prophet, Hosea, uh, accuse Israel of adultery. Where was the marriage? It was there. It was all that language right there in Exodus chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 18 and going up to 20. And then we have this judicial law. We have these this section of judicial laws in chapters 20 to 24. Chapters 25 to 31, which we just finished up, is these worship laws. What worship is. And now we're going to be getting into the tabernacle. And so that's kind of where we are in the story of Exodus. Now just to, again, set that in its context... The original audience of the book of Exodus are the children of Israel. They've already wandered in the wilderness 40 years. These are the children who have have spent their lives wandering in the wilderness, have grown up, and are ready for Joshua to lead them into the promised land. And so camped on the plains of Moab, Moses receives this revelation from God, compiles it, and gives it to the people of Israel, and then he is off the scene. That's where we are in the grand picture That's where we are now narrowing down into our text. It's important because we need to think of the application to the original person. Uh, To be faithful with the text is to understand it in its context and etc. Now, (laughs) the other preliminary thing I want to point out is that those of you who have been with us a while know that we've already done all this. All the verses that I just read, you have heard read before. All the verses that I just preached on, all the time, or that I just read, you have heard sermons on. That's what we've been doing for the past year. (laughs) So what I'm going to do is, if you need to catch up, feel free to go online and listen to a bunch of (laughs) sermons. But what I'm also going to do is I'm just going to highlight some of the distinctives, some of the differences as we're coming around to this cycle, if you'll notice the first verses, uh, actually beginning in verse 4, are almost word for word chapter 25. Uh, it, it's the same list of, of items, it's the same list of equipment, 
And so we're just going to be highlighting some of the differences, some of the distinctives here as we continue to move on in our journey. There's three in this text this morning. The first is... In the Sabbath regulations of verses 1 through 3, we've already seen keep the Sabbath several, several times already. But there's something new that's here, and that's at the end of verse 3, you shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Why is that a deal? What does God have against fire? (laughs) Why, of all the things, would that stand out as a new bit of instruction? That's the first thing we're going to look at. The second is the way in which every man and woman in the congregation, the entire congregation, participates in this. Every single individual. You you heard that. As we read through the text, repeated over and over and over again, every single man and woman, leaders, everybody participates. So we're going to notice that a little bit. And then thirdly and finally, there's one phrase that keeps being repeated throughout this passage. And that is of a generous heart, a willing heart, a glad heart. So let's look first at verse 3 and God's problem with fire, apparently. You will have no fire in your home. Now, actually, what Moses has done, and, and this, this entire thing is, is very much, it's a visual. Moses is putting together a word picture. The word picture, as we saw earlier with the tabernacle, the word picture, that, that beautiful, glorious visual image that we have in the tabernacle is of how to get back to the Garden of Eden. The Holy of Holies, that place where the mercy seat is, that place where there's perfect communion with God, the holy place, that place where the light and the bread is, that place of communion, of fellowship with God, where Israel exists, that place that we were banished from by by sin, that place that our brokenness caused God to kick us out and bar the way with an angel with a flaming sword, that place is now open again. It's open. There's a courtyard. There's a gate into this place. But it's a place, it's a gate that has come, that, that, that requires that we come by way of blood. A lot of blood. And that altar would have been the greatest visual thing that people saw as they looked up at the tabernacle, that great altar. So all of these things are addressing the question of how do we get back into Eden? But what this picture is addressing, the Sabbath is a picture, and specifically this issue of not having fires on the Sabbath. The children of Israel are all camped in tents. God is pleased to camp with them, to be there in their midst. His house is a tent. It's a fancy tent. It's a glorious and beautiful tent. But his house is a tent. 
And he's willing to dwell in the midst of his people, his people all gathered around him. Jesus takes up the imagery later when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often, like a hen gathers her chicks, what I have gathered you in. That's what God does in the tabernacle. That's what this is a picture of, is God gathering his children in and protecting them. And when do you know that someone's at home in the tent? When the home fires are burning. When the home fire is lit. And so one day in seven, all the children of Israel take a, take a break. They take it away. But there is one who never slumbers. There is one who never sleeps. There is one who is always there to care for his family. To care for his flock. To care for his children. And Moses, in, in bringing that in, just gives us that image. Think of the dark night. And all that camp in black darkness. But there's one place where that light is shining. There's one place that that lamp is never going to go out. There's one place that all night long our God is active and aware. I mentioned earlier, I, think, I find it surprising that we've gone from all of this judgment and wrath of God and slaughtering people and plagues and all this stuff to this. I find it remarkable that we've gone from one to the other. But I think if you and I knew personally, if you and I knew from the depths of my being, of your being, that you and I had gone from God's wrath to God's blessing. What do you think maybe your life would be? What do you think maybe your attitude would be? In what way do you think the mission of the gospel would be realized in you? If you knew, like the children of Israel know, <laughs> They should have been smashed like bugs. What they did against God was grotesque. And now he's saying, I'm going to be there in your midst. And one day in seven, I want you to just remember that I'm the one who takes care of you. I'm the one who heals you. I'm the one who protects you. Their shocking transition from what I would expect would be groveling fear to this joyful and glad response is seen there in the Sabbath. It's seen there in the picture of that light that comes from the tabernacle, not from any of the other tents. The second, the text makes a, a real big point, obviously, as we've, as we've already seen through this, that the whole congregation, uh, is involved. Every skilled craftsman. Uh, in verse 22, so they came both men and women. Uh, every man dedicated an offering of gold and every skillful woman down in verse 25 spun with their hands and the leaders down in verse 27 brought onyx stones and then we sum it up. All the men and women, the people of Israel. Every single person that had that willing and loving and generous heart was involved in this joyful 
response to God's mercy. In this joyful response to God not wiping them out. And I'm just going to brush past that one and go really to the third one, which is, which is connected, but, but this third is that phrase that gets repeated several times throughout this passage. Whoever is of a generous heart, in verse 5, in verse 21, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him. All the way down through the passage, it finally culminates. A number of these, number of these phrases repeated throughout finally culminates in verse 29. That's the, 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 the crescendo of this passage. All the men and the women, the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses brought to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Generous, willing, moved. So, beloved, here's, here's where I want you to focus. <laughs> Exodus is a drama. Exodus is a story. And we know that it's a story about Jesus Christ. Because you remember when Jesus was born, Herod wanted to kill him. He was told, go down into Egypt, take the baby down into Egypt, so that it might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now that is a whole theology of Jesus Christ as the perfect Israel. The perfect Son of God. The perfect one. But Israel's story is over and over and over and over. A story of falling, of sliding, of failing. They've done it once already with the golden calf. They're about to do it again, as everybody knows, with not going into the promised land and saying there's giants in the land. They are going to stumble throughout their existence as a nation until finally that true Israel comes. And all the ways that they're going to try to do it right, they're going to twist and turn into legalism, turn into Pharisaism, turn into judgmentalism, until finally true Israel comes. So to tie it all back, what would my life look like? What would my attitude be? Your life, your attitude. If you knew that you deserved the wrath and curse of God, and instead, you're his beloved. Do you think maybe there would be a big free will offering of our lives? Do you think maybe we would understand what Paul means when he says, give your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service? Of course I'm going to give myself to him. Of course he will be my portion and my delight. And finally, I think the final question is, how do we get there? How do we get to that vision? I know how to get to the buff body. 
not going to do it. <laughs> but the thing I really want to be like, the Christ that I want to be like, how do I get there? Those of you who have been in my home know that my treasured possession, <laughs> uh, physical art, nonsense stuff, but is, is Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son. Got it hanging, tile of it hanging on my wall and backlit and all that sort of cool stuff. That painting speaks to me so deeply because I find myself in every one of those poses. If you're familiar with the painting, it's the father embracing the prodigal. The prodigal son is turned and is at rest leaning on his father's chest, and his father's worn old hands are embracing his son's shoulder. The elder brother is standing aside in the dark, and he's looking on judgmentally. This is not okay. And there's another guy standing there, and he's just kind of glancing. He's totally uninvolved in this scene at all. And then there's another guy that's unaware of the scene. And he's just staring out of the painting. And Rembrandt's point is that you and I are every one of those. When we see grace, when we see God's work, when we see redemption, when we see forgiveness, sometimes we're a little judgmental about it. Why is that person getting forgiven? I'm not so sure I'm ready to go as far as you guys are in terms of being accepting, a little far for me. Or we're totally uninvolved. People are, are going through their spiritual struggles and we are clueless. We are so uninvolved. Or we're just unaware. We're just completely unaware. Rembrandt's point, all the light in the picture is focused right on the embrace of the Father and the Son. That's where the gospel is. The embrace of the penitent Son at rest on his Father's breast. And beloved, if you and I Live there. It's going to produce naturally. As if like fruit. As if the Spirit might produce it. Marriages that are loving, joyful, peaceful, patient. Men and women who are kind. Generous and gentle. But beloved, it's got to begin here. It's got to begin here, like the children of Israel. These silly people. Ha, ha, ha. Golden calf, don't they know better? Teaching us a lesson. (laughs) That when God has forgiven me, I think my response can be joyful and loving and full of the love of God. 
So we're called to pick ourselves up again and again and again. That's the real gym. That's, that's, that's the real hit in the gym. A, a daily denying myself. A daily crucifying yourself. Living for Christ. That is the real gym. And that is why we are blessed with the means of grace. Worship service itself is a means by which God refreshes us in our wilderness. The word preached is where He speaks to us through His word read and preached. And then the word tasted. The gospel tasted. As we say, this is where our life is. Because Israel couldn't save us. Moses couldn't save us. They were all imperfect. They were all flawed. They were all pale reflections of the one when he lifted up his soul, when he said, it is finished. God tore that curtain from the top to the bottom, the holy place. It was like the the, the holiness of God could no longer be contained. It had to burst out and burst through the world. And it did so, beloved, beginning right here. When Jesus Christ took bread and He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take and eat. Eat. 